Welcome to our last show of 2021. We're on the precipice of another year. And yeah, there's some tough stuff to deal with out there. There's a variant that's surging. Inflation is rising. And a new Machine Gun Kelly album is in the works. But <laughs> who wrote that? Who, was he ever going to come on the show? I'm asking our intern, Hannah. No? Okay. Now he's for sure not coming. Uh, anyway, we like to remain optimistic. In the words of T.S. Eliot, last year's words belong to last year's language. And next year's words await another voice. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Today on the program, Kurt Newman. Let me tell you a little bit about the Bodines and Kurt Newman. Since the early 80s, the Wisconsin-bred Bodines have been playing some of the catchiest and most compelling rock and roll you're likely to hear. With nearly 20 albums to their name, including Love and Hope and Sex and Dreams, Outside Looking In, and Mr. Sad Clown, the Bodine's discography is a riveting blend of American music played with heart and soul and truth. They've had quite a decorated career, and it's one that found them opening for U2 on the Joshua Tree Tour, playing Farm Aid, recording with Robbie Robertson, being produced by everyone from T-Bone Burnett to Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads, releasing a killer double live album, having a massive hit with Closer to Free, and touring all over the world. They've gone through many iterations of their lineup, but original member Kurt Newman is the man holding down the Bodines' legacy, and with the addition of legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff, the Bodines sound better than ever. Really cool to have a chat with Kurt. So, let's get to it. Me and Kurt Newman having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Basically, you know, everybody started 
saying you had to, you know, stream from home. And I didn't want to just play acoustic guitar in my hallway with my iPhone. So what I started doing was re-recording a lot of our classic songs. And uh, I would go in the studio and kind of re-record stuff for a couple of days. And then I would do some video for a couple of days and I'd put it all together. And I was doing one song a week for like 25 weeks or something like that. And uh, it kept me real busy, you know, because it didn't give you a lot of time to uh, mess around with songs. You know, you kind of had to... Uh, just get it done and and so because i had been working on the ranch stuff i had developed kind of a system for working fast um so that helped and then as far as the video i i just used my iphone i would go outside and throw some stuff together and throw it into some software and put it together and then i would upload it to facebook and the fans seemed to really appreciate it and uh, it kind of kept me engaged with you know our fan base during all that lockdown time which you know nobody knew was going to be a year long yeah was there ever a moment during that that year of inactivity where there was a little bit of of panic on your end or did you stay pretty calm about it um i felt calm i was more panicked i think at the beginning because i was worried about like you know, runs on the banks and stuff. Yeah. You know, I thought everyone, everybody didn't really know what was going to happen. And I thought it could get really, really nasty if, if people really start freaking out and, and going and trying to get all their money out of banks and stuff like that. Um, I didn't get any financial help from any of those government programs, which was a little tough. I had applied to three different banks even when i had worked with for 20 years to get some pp money and stuff but everybody turned me down so it was surprising to me um how i was watching on tv and these like restaurant owners would be like well i didn't really need the money but i got four million dollars just in case and so i'm putting it in the bank to hang on to it and it just seemed to me like people who really needed the money the most were struggling to get anything and the people who were pretty okay, you know, like restaurants could still have takeout and stuff. They could still sort of function where musicians and techs and stuff were put off the road completely. There was nothing we could do. And yet I never heard one word from the government on we need to help these people somehow. It was always like the restaurants and the bars or even the clubs, but not not the actual touring musicians. So I was lucky that I've worked for years to, you know, get some savings and and save up money for a rainy day and um, have a bunch of bills paid off and things like that, that I was able to get through it, but I wasn't able to like a lot of people where they could like pay their whole band for a year or pay for you, you know, their whole restaurant or their employees or something like that, because I never got any PP money at all. I couldn't do that. So we were all kind of on our own. Yeah. I think people in the arts community really, really got hit pretty hard. Um, you know, everyone from painters to musicians to actors um, and then the people who who support those musicians and actors and artists in terms of galleries and people who do the lights and the sound um, I mean it that must have been an incredibly scary time for those people as well yeah in fact when we came back around to finally being able to go out and do some shows it was May of uh, 2021 and Two, three weeks before we were going out, 
three of the people I were just depending on just said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to go back out. I'm just going to go back to school or, or a couple of them had got so much unemployment that they were able to kind of take a year and, I mean, they live very modestly, so they could just, we're just going to, you know, stay in town and do our own thing and, and not go out and stuff. So I really kind of struggled at the last second to try to even throw some people together to go out and do shows. And we're still wrestling with it. Two of the, the base players that I played for years with decided to retire and um, just, it just wasn't worth it anymore for them to go out and do it. And, uh, one of the tour managers that we had been working with that just kind of got things going and functioning all of a sudden at the last second was like, Nope, not going out. So that's a real struggle when you're like everything you hear right now, everyone is looking for employees. It's no different for us. We're, we're really, you know, struggling to keep uh, the people out there and keep, keep being able to even play the shows at yeah. this point. But, but so far so good that uh, we've found people who come out. I was talking to Glenn from to the wet sprocket and he was saying, you, you can't enforce somebody wearing a mask inside of a, they can wear it to get in, but you can't enforce them, you know, to keep it on once they're in the audience. Um, Cause he was saying yeah. he saw a lot of masks slip down. How is your level of anxiety just in terms of for just general health? Um, do you think about that stuff? And when you're playing, is it distracting to think about that? Yeah, I actually don't, which is weird. I think that considering how much um, it is a threat, I, you know, I went out and got back straight away because this is how I make a living. You know, I, I realized I would have to, if I was going to make money for my family, I was just going to have to be vaccinated and, and, and try to stay healthy. But, um, so I have, I don't think about it when I'm out there playing, um, and people are in the clubs. A lot of the clubs we play, people are all in masks and stuff. And it's a little weird because you can't really hear people <laughs> as well either. Um, and it's been kind of tough because we only I, I'm seeing about 50, 60 percent of the people coming out right now compared to our normal crowds, because mm -hmm. there's so much that, you know, they have like either vaccine mandates and mask mandates and you can't even come in the crowd in the club or you have to have a small capacity in the club and all these things that I think in general, there are about half the people out there, at least my age type people are saying, you know, I'll, I'll wait a couple of years before I start going out to shows again. So I think the industry is still struggling a lot out there right now. Um, the first half of the summer, we were just doing outdoor shows and those were fine. You know, we had big outdoor shows and people would show up and it was good. But once we went indoors, I've noticed people are a lot more hesitant about getting into crowds and sitting close to people and stuff. And I think they're just waiting it out a bit. How did it feel to come back and be on stage again? Was that a cathartic moment for you? Um, yeah, it was a little bit surreal because I, I didn't know in 2020, you know, how long this was going to go. I wish someone had told me I was going to have all of 2020 off because <laughs> it just, at first it was like a rolling thing month by month like oh these these got moved into next year and then the next month you'd be waiting to go out and planning on it and then oop these got moved and it really wasn't until the fall that I realized I just wasn't going to play all year and I all my life I've been planning to take a year off of touring <laughs> and it would have been nice to have known that this was my year but I didn't so I had to keep planning on going out and playing and and planning for you know, the pandemic and how are we going to do this? Cause I do have one daughter who's immune compromised, so she can't 
you know, it's kind of dangerous. I can't get her sick and she can't get vaccinated. And my wife can't get it because she's like super allergic to all those medicines. So, um, you know, we have to be kind of super careful about it, but um, I don't know. I feel it's something you we still feel like the industry is going like week by week or month by month trying to make sense of it all. Do you find that you are writing a lot of new material these days? Do you feel especially productive in that regard? Well, the thing of it is that was tough. I have two records that were finished before even 2020 I was planning to put out. And so when 2020 hit and I realized I wasn't going to be able to do shows, it made no sense to put out the new material because I wasn't going to be able to go out supported at all. So that's why I decided to do the remakes of the old songs and for people instead, because they already knew those songs and it was refreshing to do something new and interesting with them. But so I have a backlog of stuff. I have a new record that's not only recorded, but it's mastered. It's everything's done. I'm just looking for a good window to put it out. And it probably will be, you know, going into 2022 that I'll put it out and, I have another record that's sitting there mostly done. And so I also sold my house during, you know, the last year and, and am living in an apartment right now while we get another house. And uh, so it's, it's been an incredible transition over the last couple of years. That that's the key word for me these days is transition. Like everything's different than it's been for the last 15 years, you know, I had a regular house and a regular system of going out and coming home and I had a studio. So now I'm not recording as much because I don't have the studio right now. So I'm having to do stuff in a more sparse way and depend on the stuff that I have in the can. So I haven't been thinking about writing because I wrote so much stuff during the ranch years for that show that um, and created such a backlog that I just thought I'm going to not push myself to do that in the hopes of when I come back to it that it might be, you know, really invigorating and different and interesting because I've been waiting to try to do a record that's really, really different for a long time. Like the stuff that the ranch wanted me to do for them was that very much Americana, traditional stuff that I've always done. I'm trying to come up with a record that's really, really different uh, one of these days. So I'm that's why I'm taking the time off right now is to hopefully some... I'll get some different inspirations and and something interesting will come about. Yeah, I mean that's a happy problem to have to have you know almost too much material. It's kind of a nice a nice problem to be having on your hands, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I just I don't like uh, getting a huge backlog. There's something for me at least about once I recorded a record, you know, I wrote and recorded and put it out that's when the floodgates would always open for me about writing stuff. Um, And until that process was complete, I just felt like, yeah, I have all this other stuff to think about and there's no reason for me to sit down and um, try to create something new because your head's so much in this other new stuff that you're already thinking about bringing to people. And, and so once this stuff gets out, I think, you know, I'll have more of that. uh, But like I said, I, I'm hoping it'll be in a more interesting way. I'd like to find some people to record with that are more um, different than what I would normally play with to kind of push me in a different direction and and create some different sounds and things like that. 
When you say you have two records, are you talking about, are they Bodine's records or are they Kurt Newman records? Well, this one I'm about to put out is definitely a Bodine's record. The next one, it's it's a little bit different and stuff. So I'm not sure if that's going to be Kurt Newman or not until it's kind of finished. Um, but it's it's possibly a Kurt Newman record. There was a Kurt Newman record many years ago that destroyed me. Uh, the Shy Dog <laughs> record is just such a beautiful, heartbreaking album. Yeah. Um, that it's almost so heartbreaking. There are times where I can't listen to it because it's just so wrenchingly beautiful and sad. Um, yeah. But well, I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, I was in a very dark time there. That that's for sure. All those songs I was writing was just in that despair mode. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, I was trying to write, you know, music that was rhythmic, rhythmically like uplifting and stuff. But every lyric that came out of me was just dark, and there was nothing I could do about it. It was just no. what was there. That was uh, I call it despair arcana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> that's about right. I, you know, a lot of musicians I'm wrestle with depression, and I I'm I'm no different that way. I I think that's why a lot of people are attracted to music and stuff. Is it? It's kind of uplifting. It helps lift us up out of those depression places. And, uh, you know, the interaction with an audience can really just make you feel great. And and music was always an escape for me that way, as long as I can remember. Uh, and so uh, it helps a lot. But sometimes as a writer, yeah, you slip into those darker places and uh, it has to come out somewhere. And so that's what I do with the music. I think at the time I'd had a really big loss in my life. I think my, at the at that time that album came out, there'd been a massive loss for me. And I just correlated, you know, Shy Dog, which is about loss with that. And um, yeah, yeah it, was, it was painful and beautiful and also incredibly helpful. I, I, I should say that. Yeah. Really, really helpful. Um, but a beautiful Yeah, and it's album. also what you create. I was, I was in a place in my life where the rest of the band, like, Sam had done his was doing a solo thing so he had taken control of our studio and our manager was working with him and I just kind of had gotten left I had been out just got out of bad marriage and I was all of a sudden down in Austin Texas in the midst of I was moving to different towns trying to fix my marriage which was wasn't working and I ended up in Austin then just alone in this house and I didn't have anything to record with, so I just bought some digital recorders and I would just go into this back bedroom and try to come up with something. But I was I was just all alone on it. And and uh, some people think that's not a good thing. Like I talked to T-Bone Burnett about it. And his, his opinion was like, you can come up with stuff that's really you, but it can be very mono in nature, you know, and that it's just so much just you that it's not really appealing to other people. And I don't know, you know, if that's the case or not. I'm glad you say you connected with it because you never know. But I was just stuck there. You know, my marriage had ended. My favorite dog in the world had been killed by a rattlesnake. And it was just, you know, my whole world had just come to this terrible place. And uh, I was just alone. I was at one point, the police showed up at the door. And I opened the door and the cop goes, looks at me, goes, oh, so you're OK, you're alive. No, Nobody's hurt. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like. You know, I hadn't been answering the phone and stuff. And so, like, people <laughs> finally called the police to come check on me because I was just, I wouldn't see people, you know. I was i was living on 10 acres outside of town, and I, I just didn't go out, you know. And I was in that place, and 
So that's what that's the record that came out of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it almost feels like that's how you that's how you process grief or depression is through art. That's how that's how I've always done it as a writer. Um, you know, articulating emotional experiences. Um, it seems like that's how art will will save you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I that's what I. It's done that for me. You know, you look at the artists like Kurt Cobain or Hendrix and stuff that didn't manage to live through it. Um, and and that's, I feel for them because it, luckily for me, the music did help me maintain, you know, there was something there I that I didn't have to go deeper and deeper into drug use, you know, because the music was far more satisfying to me than the drug use and so I lived through it whereas I could see at that time it would have been easy for me to really just lose it all. Has there always been a sort of um a penchant for self-preservation on your end like you don't you never struck me as the kind of guy who was um abusing abusing yourself in that in that regard it didn't you know didn't come across that way so have you always have you always had a sort of um, self-preservation being baked into your DNA? Yeah. I mean, I think my, my parents were heavy, heavy drinkers. My dad died of alcoholism and, um, there wasn't a lot of, you know, my parents weren't bad people, but there wasn't a lot of supervision. And like my mom put me into school at four years old and stuff. I didn't even, I didn't know how to read or write or anything. And I found myself in these places. So I think in my life, I had to learn to take care of myself because nobody else was going to. So I think that is, whether it's in my DNA or it's learned, it's it's definitely something that's been there. I've always been more, um, you know, consider myself really fortunate, whereas uh, not everybody sees it like that. You know, even people in the band that I played with have had different opinions on that, I was when we got our major record deal or something. I was just, I was so happy to to have things like that. To me, those were gifts in your life, and I was, I considered myself very fortunate. So I never had to, you know, dig that far down into uh, substance abuse. That just never gave me the satisfaction that um, music and life and art and all these things I kind of wanted to do. I think uh, were far more interesting to me and and brought me far more satisfaction. So I think you're right. It, it was definitely part of my composition. Did you also find that collaboration is a really great way to, to also lift one's spirit, you know, artistic collaboration. I'm a writer, I write alone, um, but I would imagine being in a band and having that sort of, at least the theoretical democracy of a band in place, mm-hmm. I would imagine that the spirit of collaboration would also be an uplifting thing. I think I think it can be, but you know, with the right people, the who I hire to play in the band with me now, the number one requirement is that we don't delve into the head games thing and ego things at all anymore. I find people who want to go out and play music because they like doing it and the, the whole ego thing and mind games and uh, somebody needing to be the star of the show is just not part of what we do anymore. I think when you're young, at least, or in many bands that just everybody gets these ideas of 
who's getting the most attention or who wants to be the star of the show and stuff. And I was just happy to play. I didn't, I didn't never needed to be the star. I, I was a drummer. I grew up playing drums. I was happy playing drums. And then when I got out of high school, I thought if I'm going to do anything with this music thing, I got to learn to write songs. So I bought a guitar to write songs and then I was going to put a band together, but I couldn't find any guitar players to play, you know, my stuff. And so I, taught my brother to play drums on 20 songs and I just played the guitar because I was the guy who was sitting around putting the band together and so it all happened that way and the next thing I know someone asked me to sing some songs once in a while because it would make this sound you know we'd have more things in the band and I was like well I'm not a singer but sure I'll try it and I did that and then a couple years into it I find myself out in Hollywood in a recording studio standing there with a guitar singing songs you know, with people and Burnett producing a record. And I, I don't, I literally don't know how I got there because I was happy playing drums and I love playing the drums and, 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 but there I was, you know, life had some other plan for me that I just stumbled into. And the next thing I know, Warner Brothers is saying, yeah, that's Fade Away was the first single. And here's this song I'm playing guitar and singing on that I never intended to do. So I, I didn't need to be the star. I was, happy just being in a band and playing music you know the more every year I could play music just felt like a gift to me and and that's great when you can find people who have that attitude but I I find it can be rare a lot of times uh, at least with younger people in the music industry they have so much ambition on what they want and I think it gets in the way of the music I also think that ambition is fueled by the libido of a 20 year old guy i mean it's like i think a lot of your the stupid stuff that you do and the decisions that you make and the the sort of boorish behavior um comes it is comes from that sort of libidinous moment in your life that kind of uh you, know, you and i are around the same age it, it does tend to go away <laughs> it's one of those things where you know i think people mellow out especially guys i think we tend to mellow out because yeah. that sort of is not as loud in our brains anymore um that's always been my working theory i don't know if that's true well i think it is true in general i just think that when i when we first started putting a band together and people were responding to it to me that was more important than us individually. Mm. And I think not everybody in the band felt that way, which was, you know, and in many bands can be a problem. But I, my, my feeling was like, wow, we have a band and people respond to the music and we get to go on tour and what could be better than that, you know? And so my, that just felt like the be all and end all to me. I didn't, but very often that's not enough for you know other people and stuff and so it, it becomes hard for bands to navigate all that and and the business of music doesn't make it any easier you know there's a lot of pressure from the record company on selling records and if it means paying more attention to this person or that person like for some reason my songs that i would write would always be picked by the record company for the singles on the records and i think over time that was you know difficult uh on the other people and and stuff and yet i wasn't you know pushing for my songs that was entirely up to the record company and stuff but when those things happen in the business of music it can lead to some you know resentments or angers and things like that and and then that plays out and there's very few bands were able to get through that you know i i marveled at you too being able to get through that and and 
and huddle up and remember that it was the music and it was the band that was the most important one. Almost no band does that. It's very rare. Well, where they retain the same members. Like I look, you know, I'm out here in, yeah. in the area. I, I, my immediate thought is Green Day, where I think like, you know, they kept the same members. They they stayed productive. Yeah. And um, just yeah. like you too, um, you're right. They And that's not, that's not, that's a very short list that we could come up with. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I have found, you know, at, the, at this point in my life, like I said, you and I are, are around the same age is that I'm so interested in the future. Now I'm, I've lost, I've lost interest in the past. I don't sort of fetishize the past the way I used to. Um, yeah. I don't even not, remember like, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I'm not even sure I can remember it, but I, I do think about the future in a, I'm more excited about the future than I am the past. And when you think about the Bodines and you think like, you know, it's, it's the Bodines, the version of then it is 2021, 2022. Um, how do you, how do you view it? Do you, do you try not to think about it historically? Do you think like this is kind of a new, a new version of an old thing? Like how do you contextualize it in your brain? Yeah. Well, I can't, I can't visually give people, what they remember when they were in college and stuff. So I focus on musically giving that to them. And I try to play a set worth of songs that they, you know, remembered and heard on the radio and connected with. I can't play all the songs, but I can play a bunch of them that they heard in general and, and used to sing along with on the radio when they were driving their car or something like that. And, uh, and and I stick to that. I try to present an uplifting, you know, kind of performance for people with good players who can sometimes surprise them with, you know, just their virtuals of what they can do and stuff. And and I try I try to throw in elements of the 80s and 90s for them that they will react to and stuff like that. But mostly I just want to make it a fun, fun show of uh, great sing-along booting classics. You know, I don't need to take them to some new direction right now because I think when they show up, that's what they want. They want to sing to these songs that they grew up with and spent a lot of time with. And so I can present them with some new stuff here and there. But most of all, I think I, if I'm thinking about them, um, it's giving them that that overall feeling um, of being you know, out of college or being a young parent or something. And these experiences they had with the music and giving them, you know, an uplifting moment. What I say to people is I see so much of this country dividing. I, all I want to do with music now is bring people together, you know, instead of all this divisiveness and hating each other. When you bring music in, we can all just be in a room together and sing along to these songs. And so I, that's the kind of stuff I focus on when I show up in somebody's town.
I'm not saying that the Bodines are like the fall where you had like a hundred members, but you've had a lot of members. And I think that when you, yeah, right. When you look at this version of the band, um, you must be terribly excited by, by where you are now with, with who you have in terms of your, your personnel, your, your drummer's no slouch. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful, you know, um, to be able to go out and just play music with people who are fantastic at what they do and, and feel the way I do too. They just want to put on a good performance. They want people to be happy. They want you to feel good. Cause uh, that's, that's, that's really what I was always shooting for. And, and so um, at my age to be able to go out and do that, it's, it's very satisfying. Were you guys, I always wondered because of the slash connection and I wondered about, and also the interchangeable drummer, but I wondered if you guys were pals with the violent femmes, were they, were they friends of yours? Yeah, I know. I know Brian. I don't know Gordon, but I know Brian pretty well. We see each other now and then. And, um, you know, I absolutely love their music. I, I 
I thought what they were doing was just brilliant. And I, when I look at them and Bodine's, you know, especially our early version of Bodine's, um, it was just so interesting to me that these two bands came out of the same town, you know, a, a town that people really don't know much about, you know, and not, not a lot of people go to Milwaukee or Waukesha, Wisconsin, um, in their lives. And so, and it's certainly not an epicenter for, you know, music like some towns are, whether it's LA or Nashville or New York or places like that, historically who are known for their music or San Francisco and even like Texas, you know, there was a lot of bands who would come out of there, but these two incredibly innovative, interesting bands that came out of Milwaukee, it just amazes me that they were able to create their own identity and their own sounds the way they did and that the world responded to it. And ended up on the same label. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had been shooting for Slash because we were fans of all the music they were putting out. You know, we love Los Lobos and T-Bone Burnett and stuff like that. And his production and, you know, the the different bands, Blasters, all these bands that were coming out at the time. I We loved, you know, we were not a hair band Bon Jovi fan, you know, and I'm not criticizing them. I think, you know, every band had their good songs that they write, but... Um, we were, we just didn't do that. It wasn't our thing. So when we heard these other bands who were doing stuff like that, we could relate to, you know, we grew up with Springsteen and Tom Petty and we heard bands that were similar to that playing American music. Uh, that was the label we wanted. They were a hell of a label. I look at their roster and I mean, even stuff like X and the gun yeah, club. Yeah. I mean, what'd you make of the gun yeah. club? I wasn't real familiar with the gun club. Um, but but there was a lot of great, you know, Americana going on under the surface then, uh, you know, but when we, you know, even on the first record, when we would show up to record, to radio stations, they didn't know <laughs> who we are because it was just rock radio going on then, you know, and, and they were playing, you know, the Bon Jovis and the Poisons and the Warrants and all those bands. And so they didn't really know anything about us. So all that stuff was really under the surface for us uh, going on, but you felt like there was something building. Did punk rock do anything for you or did that totally miss you? Um, I think it missed us. I, I, you know, totally related to the energy. And, and I think to get back to Green Day, I, I thought what they did to kind of, I think commercialize it is probably the wrong word, but they were very good at commercializing it yeah. and, yeah. and taking punk, punk and putting it into the mainstream pop music scene and stuff. But but I think it was a little bit before our time, so I don't think it quite lifted us up. We weren't quite that raw and in your face as, as punk music was. And what about a band like like Nirvana? Did they did they mean anything to you at all? I know they were contemporaries, really. Yeah, well, I loved them uh, in what they were doing in in the songwriting, and uh, was just kind of brilliant. But uh, I don't. I think. You know, they they came after us really, you know, um, as far as our first busting on the scene was in the late 80s. And, and that's when we were really the critical darlings and got tons of press. We got voted best new band in Rolling Stone and stuff. And all that was in the, after the first record and being able to go out and record with Robbie Robertson and go on tour with you 2 all that happened in the late 80s. So when the 90s came around and stuff, it was kind of moving away from us more than helping us. Yeah, you guys certainly started with a with a bang. I mean, with all the stuff you're talking about and 
um, you know, it was, it was fairly, there was a lot going on. Like you said, you're standing next to T-Bone Burnett, you're dealing with, you know, playing with Robbie Robertson. Those are, those are big things yeah, um, yeah, yeah. happening. And I remember, I remember on the outside looking in record, I remember there was like, was, I think some, wasn't someday on that record or someday on the first record. I can't remember. It wasn't on the first. No, I thought it was on the third record, but I'm not sure. Okay. But, the, but I remember that you definitely, there was like a little touch of reggae and I thought, oh, this is cool. Like yeah. it seemed to me, so you were talking earlier about the idea of different musical styles. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is, is that the kind of thing? Well, there was that, I always felt on the first record though, still the night was what we used to call white boy reggae because it was just not reggae, but it was like almost an interpretation of some of the rhythms that they would use in it and stuff. So um, someday was definitely another attempt at that. I, I love being a drummer. I love really rhythmic music, which is not really what Bodine's was known for, but any chance I had to kind of express that, uh, that was my thing. Even the good things, you know, was very much about the rhythm of that song and, and how interesting it was rhythmically. So I looked for, to exploit it as much as I could, but <laughs> Um, the band as a whole wasn't really good at stepping out of their Americana box, so it was very limited. So in but terms, I of, do love Ray. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of in terms of musical styles, it seems like what you would experiment with is something that would veer towards the percussive, whether it's reggae or not, just something rhythmic, yeah. and more percussive than than yeah. what you're doing now. Yeah, I was even a fan of a lot of R&B music and stuff growing up in the soul music and stuff like that, too. And a lot of that is just beautifully rhythmic, beautiful rhythm, beautiful melody and beautiful singing. And and to me, that's that's all I ever, you know, tried to aspire to. And I wasn't, you know, like I said, I wasn't growing up thinking I was going to be a singer, but but I certainly appreciate it when I hear it on, on music. Does Kenny bring a certain swing? to the Bodines that wasn't there before? He brings a freight train to the band. <laughs> I mean, he's just, he just, it's just so intense, you know. Uh, nobody plays as loud as Kenny does. And it's just, uh, in fact, in some of these shows when we go inside the clubs, I have a different drummer who will tour with us is because Kenny's sheer volume indoors sometimes is, is just, he'll overpower the entire room but to have him on all the outdoors shows like this summer that we've had him on it was it was great but yeah once he's going you just get on that train and you just ride along it's it's incredible as a drummer does he sometimes do stuff where you go good god that was impressive yeah i mean you know what he did even coming in to record on uh the home record when we recorded um you don't get much and good work and all those songs. What what he did on those songs for me was so, it's what I would have wanted, you know, what I would have done as a drummer. And, and I'm really hard on drummers because of that. You know, I have this kind of, I have really good timing, you know, why most people don't know, but I played most of the instruments on the Bodine's records. Even on, on the first record, the drummer had struggled with putting parts down so when we were mixing the record I had to go and on still the night I had to play on this Fairlight computer I had to put in the snare drum hits myself in rhythm because David Tickle the guy mixing the record was like he felt like he couldn't use it and stuff so I had to fix it there in the mix and stuff so my rhythm thing has always been really um, probably what I do best and um 
And so um, I'm hard on drummers, but with Kenny, he's the one guy who comes in and he just plays something and I don't have to say yes or no, you know, it's just there. It's, and for me, it's a real treat to work with people like that when they just walk in and start playing and you're like, yep, perfect. Yeah, we're done. Um, I know you're yeah. between houses right now, but in the Newman house, is there a drum kit? Do you, do you still play? Not in the apartment building, no, but I do have several drum crit, drum kits, yes, and most of them are in storage right now. But um, So hopefully in the future, I'll be able to get that back up. My kids like to make noise too. I, I, I don't know how I did it, but as a kid growing up, I had my drums in the house and I played from, you know, four in the afternoon when I got home till 10 o'clock at night every day. And, and when I think about that now, like if I had a kid doing that in my house, I would just go crazy. I'd be like, what are you doing? Um, and I asked my mom that about that years later, I was like, how could you stand it? And she said, she looked at me and she goes, I never noticed you were playing. And so I was just like, wow you know because my brother would try to play and she would just start throwing shit at him and she would scream at him like stop making that noise I was like why didn't you do that with me she's like I never noticed so I was I had something as a drummer that I think was really nice and I just never got a chance to really bring it to the world enough except on a couple of the records like go slow down I got to play the drums on the records and stuff like that um and and it was great you know I loved it what was your take on Victor DiLorenzo as a drummer? Oh, I loved it. I loved everything about that band. Everything they did, I, I thought was just really brilliant. You know, their playing, their recordings, lyrics, all of it. They just came up with this own, their own sound, their own thing. Uh, anytime a band can do that, I am just so impressed with it. Because uh, I, I think that's the way to do it. You know, so much of the music is just, a band imitating what they heard on the radio. And, and in, in fact, we got signed because we couldn't, you know, be like those other, excuse me, those other bands. Um, we could only do this weird kind of sound we were doing. We were a three piece. We didn't even have a bass player before we did the first record. And it was just pure energy, just boom. And, and it was very much like the femmes in that they had their thing. Ours was not that way sound wise. We had our singing, our harmonies and high energy kind of simple songwriting, but our songwriting was more classic than the Femmes just kind of came up with their own style of songwriting that uh, I thought was brilliant. So I really liked what Victor did. You know, I mean, the, the whole thing, the Blister in the Sun, those little snare hits and stuff, it's just, it's the perfect fill, you know? I, I love drummers who can take simplicity and just, you know, I was a Charlie Watts fan. Uh, he 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 you know that kind of rock and roll was what i loved to love to play for me it was all about the pocket and anytime i hear a drummer who can nail that part then i'm impressed and also for him to be standing you know a standing drummer with brushes and to be so yeah. disruptive and so amazing at the same time in an era where when I thought of a drummer, I thought of Neil Peart or Alex Van Halen they had this massive kit and then Victor's just standing yeah. there with these brushes and he was kick ass yeah, yeah, I like Stuart Copeland a lot for the same reason, even though it was more traditional. I, on the early police records, it, it always seemed to me like the drums were the lead instrument. You know, the guitar was back playing kind of a ethereal rhythm instrument, and the bass was doing its bass rhythm parts. And yet, Stuart would put on these 
double track the hi-hats and stuff and it's almost as if the drums were the lead instrument on those records that i personally i found that just incredibly interesting by the time you know they did every breath you take it was different but those early records were just brilliant and and speaking like of the punk scene at the time what the police did with the punk sound i thought was just absolutely brilliant too of they didn't need to sound like any other punk band they could just do their own thing with their own sound and it was every one of them was brilliant on their own but you put it together and it was just beautiful yeah and the police really they sort of if punk was about uh disruption and not and not um being able to play the police were all exceptional musicians so they sort of were like by definition probably not even a punk band right yeah and they couldn't help it right that's just they were just good at what they did every one of them and you can't like hide that i i brought up the ghost down record in you know, Kenny had played drums on all of that record when we turned it in and the record company literally said to us that the record sounded too good. And we were like, just shocked by it. So they wanted us to go back in the studio and make it more raw and rough sounding. And so I understood exactly what they wanted. So I did the same thing. I pieced together this non drum kit that we had in the studio of just a few weird pieces and used some blast sticks and just played it like that but I would I would like a song like Idaho I would record the drum part first it was the first track recorded and I would just sing the song in my head while I was playing the drum part and then I would go back and I would put an acoustic guitar part down and a few other parts and then I would sing on top of it and stuff and and build the tracks up like that because that's just you know who we were as a band at that time we didn't have a full we didn't have the police set up where everybody knew their thing and we could just walk into a room and play so but that's what makes it interesting sometimes is that you do something different like victor was able to do tell me a little bit about the podcast where did the idea come from and what is the sort of mission statement of it well i hadn't been thinking about doing a podcast my daughter was just like saying you should do a podcast and and i know it's become more of a thing and and um so I thought maybe it was an opportunity. There's something I'd been thinking about for a long time. I mentioned I had been put into school early. So I was I was always the youngest kid in my class. And it was always struggling to keep up, sort of. And I always didn't, my brain, I've never been officially diagnosed as dyslexic, but I really struggled with reading and stuff like that. I didn't like learning the way schools were teaching. And I couldn't understand why um the one thing i was really good at was daydreaming you know which was really frowned upon in school you know and so all the things i was good at in school i was kind of shamed for and uh because i wasn't good at their system you know i managed to get through it and get out of it but it occurred to me you know when i got out of high school i started reading like books by albert einstein and stuff i mean about albert einstein and you know, he came up with the theory of relativity from daydreaming, you know, and it just occurred to me like that some of these great things that happen in our society came from just deep thinking and people who did things differently. And what I always wanted to talk about was this mission statement of what I call the creative element. Um, to me, when I stand back and look at our society, creativity is at the core of everything we do. Everything that's revered in business and makes money came from somebody's just great idea they had about something. You know, it wasn't really necessarily copying. It was like 
here's the problem. How do I solve this problem? Which to me is what I thought math was all about, but I thought, why should I have to learn this guy's theorem to solve this problem when I'm going to solve problems the way I'm going to solve them as they come to me. And, and I hopefully will develop the ability to do that. And so I'm pushing more and more. I wanted to teach a class someday, kids in school, emphasizing just how important creativity is, because I don't think our school systems spend nearly enough time developing that in our kids going through school today. I think we, we spend so much time with, like I would, in English class, they'd say, write a short story, turn it in. I would turn it in. It would be full of red ink from, oh, you misspelled this. So you had to run on sentence. You forgot your period. And I was like, did you read the story? Because to me, the story was what was really important about sitting down and writing anything. And it didn't matter if I had a run on sentence because somebody would probably fix that somewhere down the line when they're editing the book. But the story is the one thing that's really where we make all of our progress, whether it's selling a book or selling a movie or anything you're doing. It's, it's about the idea. And the idea comes from creative, creative thinking and having good ideas. And yet in school, we never say to kids like, you know what? Why don't you just sit back today and think of some good ideas and let's let's develop those ideas and where do you think they would go and stuff like that. And I never see anyone talking about that more so now than when I was a kid, probably. But so I'm going off my life and trying to push this idea of creative element. I'm trying to talk to people who had interesting ideas and interesting workarounds in their lives, you know, whether no matter what they did, not just musicians, because it's easy to see creativity in music. But I want to talk to people in in business and other places like that who just kind of came up with their own ideas or had some success with their own ideas and thought outside of the box. And 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 hopefully we provide some interesting stories for people about uh, you know developing your own work around and believing in your own creativity in life and. And think putting that on a higher level in your life and spending more time thinking about being creative and instead of just going through the motions of whatever, you know, the way everyone else tells you to do things. And I imagine several through lines will consistently emerge, whether it's a businessman or a guitar player in a band. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was speaking to Steve Sims um, on one of them who developed Bluefish and basically just stumbled into it. He was a doorman and he developed a network of people. And then because he had that network, people would be like, oh, I'm trying to throw a party. You know anyone? And he would like, oh, sure, I could throw that. I could do that for you. And it just, he stumbled into this great success of being able to put on great parties for people and gatherings and interesting, really interesting things. And and uh, and a very inspirational speaker on his own, you know, and stuff he wasn't shooting for. He was trying to be a stockbroker, you know. He thought this is the only way to make money. I need to be a stockbroker, and that was never happening over there. And his wife finally pointed out to him, like, "Well, you already are doing this stuff that's leading to success. Why don't you just focus on what's happening?" And so often, I think people just miss that. They want to do something. They think this is what I have to do to do to get here, but they don't notice what's really happening in the moment already and and how to just open up your mind and go with that. And so I, I, I'm just trying to hope that these stories, you know, inspire people to think a little bit more like that or 
if I ever get to teach a class, I just want to reach some students who have never been taught to, to open up your mind and, and stop worrying about this or that and just develop that creative part of your brain. That's actually sage advice. It makes me think you're a cool dad because I would imagine a kid <laughs> growing up would need yeah. to hear that, right? Like that's, that, is that information that you, that in, you encourage in your children? Like, listen, like just go with, go with oh. what is lighting you up. Oh yeah. Teachers and principals hated my wife and I, that's, that's (laughs) because, uh, you know, we ended up taking our kids out of school and homeschooling them because, you know, they were in what were considered exemplary schools. But the first thing they teach the kid was to put a bubble in your mouth. In other words, keep your mouth shut and line up and we're going to walk on this blue line to lunch. You finished eating. Okay. Put a bubble in your mouth. We're going to walk on this blue line back to class. And I was just like, what? you know, you're, you're about breaking the kid right from the get go. I'm going to break you and I'm going to make you part of this system. And it's better that you learn it right now, or you're going to be a failure, you know, is what I, is everything I'm against. So we would march into principal's office for all of our kids, you know, and, and defend them for coming up with their own solutions or saying, speaking their mind and stuff, which was really frowned upon and, uh, or standing up for themselves, which was really frowned upon, but absolutely, you know, since day one, I tell my kids that of just, you know, don't, don't see limitations, don't see walls, just see what you want to do and start taking steps towards it one day at a time, one step at a time. Just do what feels right. Pay pay attention to intuition. That's something we don't do in this world. And intuition, I think, is easily as strong of a sense as our sight and our hearing and our taste. And yet we hardly ever notice it. Yeah, I teach college and I, you know, for my freshman comp students, I always say like, okay, write about yourself first person. And they think I'm like messing with them. So like, wait, you can, you can write from the first person. I'm like, of course you can. And they, it takes them a couple of weeks to really trust that I'm not playing some kind of bizarre prank. Uh, and then they start writing yeah. from the first person. And then all this interesting stuff comes up that they've never written about before. Yeah. And I think it's really, really important, especially in those high school, college years or earlier, if you can, you know, if you can instill that in them, that to, to just to open your mind, don't, don't, you don't have to think about, you know, things that they don't have to be just the same thing. You know, kids should be allowed to learn differently. I know if my mind thought differently, there's probably another 40% of kids in the school whose minds learn differently too. And we should be allowed to, we should, I shouldn't have to take the same test. I, I mean, for the kids who get through the scholastic system, well, you know, that's great. You know, I'm proud of you. You know, that's beautiful. But if you don't, you shouldn't be getting enough on your paper. You know, you should be allowed to come up with your own solutions, you know, and your own ideas about solving these problems. And, and what works for you as a person is what we should be thinking about grading. If someone just doesn't want to try anything, I understand them getting a bad grade. But if you're at least allowed to do what you do or try to come up with a solution on your own, you should, there shouldn't be any kind of failing grade for that. Are you finding the podcast inspiring for your own work? Are you finding it to be kind of a, an instructive process? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that I can, I mean, it's always been an idea in my head to try to talk more about the creative element. So the fact that I can kind of pursue it now, I find uh, is is great. Anytime you have an idea that you can kind of now walk down that road, walk down that path a little bit with and see where it goes is fulfilling. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's tough. We're just getting going on it. And, you know, when you're just getting going, my daughter was like, well, who do you want to interview? I'm like, oh, President Obama, you know, Paul McCartney and stuff like that. <laughs> Why not? And so they haven't responded yet. But so, we're, you know, hopefully we'll get to that point where we can talk to um, some really interesting people uh, out there and, and get their stories uh, and what what made that leap for them. That's really what I'm interested in is somewhere in their childhood, their adulthood, they were able to make that belief that leap system in in doing something interesting and uh that's that's the story i'm really most interested in and the sad story the other end of that are the people that had ideas but weren't encouraged to follow them and so they never made the album they never wrote the book they never started the business and they never painted the painting and to me that's that's sort heartbreaking of, you know well it is but it isn't if you're doing it that's that's my feeling about it um you know, painting the painting is about painting the painting. It's not about that, oh, I was recognized as the best artist and I sold it for $50 million. You know, it's about just doing that that thing, just doing the idea, because you never know what'll come in the long run of any of this stuff, you know? Um, you know, and I was a kid who wasn't encouraged to do anything abnormal. You know, I had I had no system there of people saying you're the best, Kurt. Believe in yourself. Nobody ever said that to me. You know, I just had the wherewithal to keep going forward because I didn't know I couldn't do anything else. You know, I, I was never going to get through the scholastic system and do great at it and get the great job in banking or something down the road. I had no choice when I got out of high school, I, I took the cash I had and went and bought a guitar because that was that was the only choice I could see. And so um, a lot of my friends wanted to play music and stuff, but they had the option. Their parents were paying for their college. And so they, they, they had an option to go and do that. I had no options. I had this guitar and I had my songwriting and all the time in the world to do it because there was nothing else there waiting for me. So um, I think it's important to kind of, if you want to do something, you just got to go do it because for, for itself, you know, for, for not, not what, what am I going to get from that, but just for the process of doing it. And just to finish up with, when you started getting affirmation from strangers about the music you were playing, you know, and I'm talking like, you know, female attention, suddenly people staring at you in ways they weren't staring at you before. Was that intoxicating in a way that was not healthy or did you have a pretty good framework of how to handle that? Um, it was intoxicating. Definitely. It was, <laughs> it was because as you said, when you're young and you're full of your testosterone and stuff like that, yeah, it's, um, it feels great when people respond in a positive way to something you're doing. It, it just feels absolutely great. Luckily for me, the music was always more important. It was always way more important to me than the other stuff. And so 
um, it kept me focused on that and uh, wanting to do that. In my early years, I would just tell anyone I was dating, look, I'm not interested in any relationship or being serious. I don't want to do it. I just, because I'm going and doing this other thing, you know, I'm going to be on tour. I'm going to play music on it. That's, that's what I really want to do. And so I did that for a long, long time till I got into my thirties. One day we were on tour and we stopped at a McDonald's to get food. And this young couple came walking out of uh, McDonald's with a two-year-old and, and they were giving happy meals away in a, in a beach like pail. And they, the kid had his little beach pail and stuff like that. And I looked at this couple and it just struck me like a, a wall of bricks falling on me. Like, of like, wow, there's, there's, there's something else there that I need to do. That's even bigger than the music was tapping into this, whatever that was the happiness they were feeling, you know, united as a family like that um, was just like, that became the really intoxicating thing. Now I never thought being doing what I was doing that I would necessarily find it, but it's, it certainly opened the door to there was something else besides music that might be really fulfilling. It's amazing that epiphany took place in a McDonald's. That's a, <laughs> yeah. And those things. Yeah. I mean, you just never know when, like I was saying about intuition, it, it, it something hits you sometimes and, and there's, you don't know why, you know, there's no explanation for it, but sometimes something just hits people, you know, and they just like, I have to do this. I have to go this direction. Now, if they have, you know, enough of belief in themselves to do it, you know, they can listen to that and they can hear it and they, they go do it, you know, and, but it's hard. It's hard when you didn't grow up with that at all. And, and people made you believe you had to do to not listen to that stuff. I remember a friend of my brother's uh, talking to him as a young out of high school guy and talking about some philosophical idea. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I, I never think about that kind of shit. I don't like that shit. You know, and I was just like, who doesn't think about that? You know, but I think there's a lot of people who just don't. They just it's it's better not to for them. And they don't. And so it's it's they grew up in a household where intuition didn't exist, you know? And uh, for me, I couldn't ignore it. It was just overwhelming when I felt things like that. It just felt like someone was beating me with a baseball bat saying, pay attention. So that's what I did. And you were clearly open to it because had it been two months earlier, you might not have been open to it, but it seems like the right, right? Like the, the, um, that moment in your life you were open to that being a suggestion. Yeah. And for me, you know, the idea of being young rock musician on tour and one night stands and stuff was only so fulfilling, you know, it, it, it was fun and energizing and stuff for a while. But I think after a while for me, it was like, well, um, I think there's something bigger there, you know, that is some kind of relationship and, you know, where a family really loves each other and the, you have this bond and connection and stuff. And the possibility of that was just much bigger to me than the idea of being on tour in every town with a different person, you know. So, I, and it took me a while. I mean, it takes a while to get to that, but, you know, thank goodness I did because when I finally found someone who was able to have kids, it was the most magical thing in the world. And I, you know, I can 
that's one of the few things I can compare to hitting the power cord at midnight with a crowd full of people who are, you know, you're all united and you're, you're, you're together and singing that song. And it's so great that to me, having a family and kids was the only other thing that compared to that. Nice guy, that Kurt Newman. Really enjoyed that conversation. What a cool dude. Uh, very chill, very honest, very approachable, and uh, hopefully we'll get him back and continue the conversation. You can continue delving into the Bodines at Bodines.com, and Kurt's podcast, which we talked about a little bit, uh, is called Staring at the World with Kurt Newman. He's had amazing guests, Kenny Aronoff, Bob Gruen, Soledad O'Brien, Miles Copeland. Uh, I've listened, and uh, the conversations are fabulous. Kurt does a great job. Check out the podcast wherever it is that you check out podcasts. You can check me out at alexgreenonline.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. And just like Kurt's podcast, Staring at the World, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, tell a friend. We would appreciate it. Well, that does it for the podcast for 2021, putting this season to bed, looking forward to the new season, which starts in, what, a couple of days? We don't have a break. We don't know what we would do with a break anyway. We would just waste time. So we're excited to get back to work and bringing you great conversations week in and week out. So stay safe out there. Enjoy your New Year's, and we'll see you in a couple of days in 2022. Thank you, as always, for listening. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Closer to Free by the Bodines. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Bombshell Radio.